0: gospel from verse 28 to verse 44 john chapter 11 verse 28 when she had said this she went and called her sister mary saying in private the teacher is here and is calling for you and when she heard it she rose quickly and went to him But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Well, we're going to pray and ask God to bless his word read and preached. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we marvel that not only do you speak to us, but you speak so clearly, and there is so much joy in these words that we have read that we cannot possibly take it all in, but we ask that we can take in as much joy as possible for those with remaining sin. Fill our hearts, we pray, with your truth, with your love, and with your grace. For Jesus' sake, amen. One of the most glorious acts of faith in the Old Testament is obviously Abraham. He's held out in the New Testament several times as the father of the faithful. And the author of the Hebrews kind of, shows us something that you don't really pick up on in chapter 22 of Genesis. You see the author of Hebrews in verses 17 to 19, speaking of Abraham, said that when Abraham was in the act of offering up his son, of whom he received the promise through your offspring Isaac, all the nations will be blessed, Abraham considered that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed in God's ability to raise the dead. Uh, Job, in that famous passage in chapter 19, declares that he will one day with his eyes and in his flesh stand upon the earth and see his Redeemer. David, in Psalm 16, believed that God would not let His Holy One see decay. Resurrection is everything. And without resurrection, everything else is a great tragedy. If you think of the first six signs in the Gospel of John, you have the turning of water into wine. You have the healing of the official, the nobleman's son. You have the healing of the man who was an invalid for 38 years, who was told, take up your mat and walk. You have Jesus feeding the 5,000, you have Jesus walking on water, and then you have the great miracle of opening the eyes of a man born blind, which has never been done since the history of the world. Now, as I say, those signs, those miracles are, shall we say, cruel in a certain sense if this seventh sign is not a reality for each and every one of us. You see, you can do without the first miracle. I mean, you can go to a wedding, and you can have your wine, and uh, you can leave, and whether you had wine or whether you don't, it's not going to change your life dramatically. You can even... Uh, Go through this life, and a medical miracle can take place, and you can be given a new lease on life because of some medical intervention, and you get to live. But at the end of the day, whatever miracle you did receive or did not receive really doesn't matter if you're going to die. And you are going to die unless Christ returns. That is the one indisputable fact that is observable by all cultures, times, peoples, races, languages. You will die. So take the first six signs and just those six signs and you have a sort of tragedy. Look at how much this man Jesus can do. Look at all the wondrous things He can do. He can make people see. He can make people walk. He can turn water into wine. He can walk on the waves of the sea. But if He can't raise the dead, so what? That's why the seventh sign is so significant, because the first six don't necessarily need to have any relevance for your life, but the seventh has relevance for every single person sitting here today. That's the importance of this sign. So, when you come to this chapter, you'll see it's a very emotional chapter. The, the emotions that go on in this chapter are probably of all the New Testament chapter is one of the chapters where the most emotions are present. Now, there are a number of characters. There is, of course, Lazarus, who some New Testament scholars actually think wrote John. I know we all think John wrote John, but um, the Gospels don't actually have the name of the author. It's likely John, but some think it's Lazarus by the way this account is written. Now, we don't know for certain. It doesn't ultimately matter, but there is Lazarus, and then he has two sisters, Martha and Mary, and you see this chapter is filled with emotion such as love. So in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill, or verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, or you can go to verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. There's also a few references to glory in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified. There's God's glory. There's Christ's glory. In fact, if you go down to verse 40, Jesus, when He prays, said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And the first sign at Cana... Jesus did these things so that they would see His glory. The signs are to glorify God. So there's glory, there is love, and you will see that there are many references also to this is done so that you may believe, that you may believe, that you may Believe Now, notice in verse 3, here is the problem. And they have highlighted who this Mary is, who anointed the Lord with ointment, which is interesting because this wasn't actually revealed in John's Gospel up to this point. And then it's just casually inserted in. So, this was a story that would have been well known among early Christians who this Mary was, so that you don't need to even have the story before this, and everyone knows. So, Mary the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, may I ask you, do you pray like this? What do I mean by that? I mean this. Do you go to the Lord and and remind him that he loves you. Notice what they're doing here. They don't say Lazarus is ill. They actually appeal to his love, to his emotions, to his connection with Lazarus, In the hope that God will do something, Christ will do something, because of his relationship to Lazarus. So, the question for us is, and this is a point of application well before the application, do you actually go to God and say, Lord, you love me, will you listen to my prayer? Your disciple whom you love. You can say that to God, reminding God not only of his promises, but the fact that he loves you. Lord, you love me. That's what they do. He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said that this illness will not lead to death. In other words, it will not culminate in death. Death may happen, but it won't culminate in death. It is for the glory of God. And Christ will also be glorified through it. Now, you will notice that something very interesting happens in verse 6. After we are reminded again that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is wonderful. Imagine being in that family. You are the object of the love of Christ, the whole family. So when Jesus, we are told, loves this family and the author is trying to tell us something very important and it's leading to verse 6. Verse 3, verse 5, and then verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he rushed immediately to where he was to cure him of his illness. That's what love should do, right? That's how we think. What is love? We see someone suffering. We want to alleviate their suffering. We want to remedy their suffering. If we love them, we don't want them to be in trouble. This is how it works generally in our home, in society. You know when you get that piercing scream from a spouse and uh, Barb yells, Quick, Mark, something's happened to the child whom you love. Thomas, let's say. And I say to Barb, Okay, I'll be there in a second. But you know, Barb last night she brought these new bubblies, the raspberry flavor. There's bubblies that are raspberry flavor. This caused a bit of a discussion after church, by the way, at the previous place, because one guy walked out and says he didn't like the flavor and someone walked out they did and, you know, lost the whole point. But I'm sitting down last night enjoying a bubbly and Barb puts them in the fridge to make them cold so that she can go in and have a cold bubbly. But I went in and had one and then I went in and I had another one. And she's like, you had two bubblies? And I was thinking, this is good. So imagine, she yells down, quick, Mark, something's happened to Thomas. Yeah, no problem. Open up another bubbly, sit around, enjoy myself. See, it doesn't make any sense. That's not how we act. Someone's in trouble, somebody's sick, and we feel we have the power to help them. We rush immediately, but Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, He waits two days. And you'll see that the author is very careful to tell us days. Why is that? We'll find out a little bit later. So He waits two days. Now, later on, we find out that Jesus says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus. Lazarus was obviously well known to the disciples. Our friend, not my friend, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. Now, this also is not very loving, right? Who likes to be woken up? One of the worst things that goes on in my household is the morning wake-up call of the children. Barb goes to the door and says, it's 7.30, that's the sign you've got to wake up. And, you know, there's some mornings where I think, maybe she should take a bulletproof vest with her today. Nobody likes to be woken up. So Jesus is going, and he's going to go and waken him up. But the disciples say, no, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus understands something they don't, and he's not even there Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. This makes no sense. Unless those words at the end are there, so that you may believe. Why is that? So he says, let us go to him. So, Thomas called the twin. You see that? That's just genius by my part. Calling my son Thomas. You know that's how biblical we are in our family. We're having twins. Well, one has to be Thomas. And it's Didymus. I said, you know, Thomas is listening. He says, we're going to call you Didymus from now on. And that does sounds awful, doesn't it? Imagine calling your son Didymus. It sounds like an insult. Hey, Didymus, come downstairs. I don't know. He didn't seem to like it. But... This is Thomas. Now, he's an interesting fellow, this Thomas, because in the Gospels, Thomas comes off looking a little bit crazy at times. Here's one such example. He is the type that he expects the worst in a situation, says, all right, let's go to Jerusalem that we're going to die. Did that actually end up happening? No, but he's one of the types that thinks, all right, let's go to Jerusalem that we may die with him. Now I can understand this. I'm a little bit like Thomas actually. It's like going to the doctor. Okay, let me go to the doctor. They may as well tell me I'm dying. But Barb will say, Mark, you're just going for a prescription for some sleeping pills for your trip to South Africa. Go easy. No, no, he'll probably find something. I'll come back and I'll be riddled with this. And anyway, let's go to the doctor that I may die. There are people like that, right? They just think the worst in a situation. They're going to go somewhere. Something's going to happen. Everything's going to be bad. Thomas is like that. It's remarkably refreshing in a certain sense to understand. There are people in the Bible who are disciples of Jesus who were a bit crazy. Always over the top. And even Thomas, after the resurrection, unless I see the scars, unless I see his sides and his hands, I'm not going to believe. Because he just can't believe anything good could happen. And we have to live with these people. And they die like that. Thomas is probably still a bit crazy after the resurrection. But I like Thomas. So let us go that we may die with him. This is a reminder that things don't always turn out as you expect them to turn out. It's just a little point in the whole narrative. Now Jesus comes in verse 17 finds that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Why? Why? Does the author, John, why does he say four days? Why is he telling us these details? Why does Jesus wait two days? Now, it's actually very interesting because in the first century at this time, there was a widely held Jewish belief that the spirit of somebody who had recently died would hover over the body for two or three days seeking to re-enter the body and that the person may actually still live. And the spirit then waits and if the body doesn't seem to be Um, coming back to life on the third day and it starts to decompose, the Spirit goes, okay, time to hover off to the places of eternity. And so the Spirit would actually leave the body for good on the third day. This was the widely held belief in the first century. So when we read four days... You have to understand that this is countering, not that Jesus needed to, but it's countering a widely held belief that maybe that person wasn't really dead. So the four days is he really is dead. He is as dead as dead can be. In fact, he stinks. There is an odor. So when Jesus has removed the stone, they say, no, no, there's a a bad odor. He's been dead for four days. Now then, Many of the Jews in verse 19 had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This is a public. Event and Martha hears that Jesus was coming. Notice Martha is the one that goes out and greets him. Where's Mary? She's sitting down inside, and you know the story of Martha and Mary. Martha's busy about many things. This is Martha, she's also going to be the type of person she is. She's out, she's about, she wants to see what's going on, she's a doer of things. Mary is sitting just like when Jesus was at. The house of Martha and Mary. And Martha was busy about many things, but Mary was sitting at the feet. See, they're just being who they are. This is to remind some of you, you're going to be the way you are till you die. Grace will change our sin, but not our natures. So, Martha goes to meet him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, this is very important. There is in this statement, I believe, a sort of recognition that if Jesus was there, He could have saved Lazarus. But there seems to be to me an implicit sort of blame allocation towards Jesus. If you'd been here, He wouldn't have died. Does she love Him? Yes. Does she know He has the power over sickness? Yes. But is she sort of blaming Him? If you'd been here, if you'd rushed immediately, if you'd come when we sent, He would have lived. Lord, And have you ever been blamed for something that isn't your fault? You know, you come and I go see my mother, and I drive up the driveway, and I knock on the door, and my mom goes, Oh, my favorite child is here. And she rushes to the door, but trips on her way, lands on her face hurts herself, and she says, Mark, that's your fault. If you hadn't come to visit me, I wouldn't have fallen, right? It's that type of idea. You know where you get blamed because someone's gone through something and you have nothing wrong, but they just need to blame. Well, she's just needing in her grief to say these words. And... It's really quite moving because Jesus doesn't seem to get too bent out of shape over this. Because then she says, I know that even whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And I don't think her faith rises up to the fact that Lazarus is going to come marching out of the tomb. But she's just hoping for some resolution to this problem. Which Jesus offers her in verse 23. Your brother will rise again. And as a good Jewish person, she says, Yes, I know there's going to be a resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, No, not so much there will be a resurrection on the last day that I'm going to enjoy, you're going to enjoy. No, I am the resurrection. I am so identified with resurrection life that I am. Not I will be. I am the resurrection and The life, And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And he's trying to elicit from her faith that he is able to raise the dead. Now when he says your brother will rise again, that ambiguity doesn't solve it for her. But he does say to her that anyone who believes in him will never die. She says in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, there's a degree of faith there. Does it rise to the heights it needs to? No, I don't think it does, but there's faith. Now there's Mary's grief. Martha's faith, you have Mary's grief. In verse 28 to 37. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here. Now she goes quickly to meet him. And as the Jews are consoling her, we see in verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw she fell at his feet saying to him, Now isn't this interesting? Like sister, like sister. So different in certain respects, and yet, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yes, I've just heard that from your sister. Clearly there seems to be some sort of, come on now. Now, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, now just stop there for a second. I want to remind you that first century funerals are not like our funerals today. Our funerals today are domesticated. I'm not blaming anyone. But funeral directors and funerals and things today, especially in where we live, they are meant to be calm, soothing affairs. They are celebrations of life. And there's a lot of money that goes into funerals to make them peaceful occurrences where nobody has to be too upset about things. And we close caskets now because we don't want to stare death in the face. But the reality is in other parts of the world, and I have seen this myself, I have had to throw dirt into a grave over one of my classmates at seminary after he died within a week of starting seminary. And have his casket open and see him right there in the flesh, dead. And his mother wailing, wailing, wailing. And people grieving and crying. And you go back to the first century and this is what they did. They said, guess what? We're emotional human beings. Death is awful. Death is ugly. But no, what have we done? We've sanitized death. We've taken away the idea of sin and rebellion against God and it's simply just a biological fact and we've t- dealt with it because we've kept people alive as long as possible and you go to a funeral now and guess what you feel embarrassed if you were to start crying i was at a funeral recently and there was a moving account where something happened all of a sudden i started having tears and i thought good grief what happens if people see tears coming from my eyes so then you start like holding your like eyes open wide you can't see the pastor with tears in his eyes at her funeral. Aren't we supposed to believe that, well, they've gone to be with the Lord and we should be happy? Yes, that's true. But that's not really biblical. Because the biblical account of death is that it is an ugly intrusion into this world. It does not belong in this world. It is representative of rebellion, of sin, of suffering, of hatred towards God in the enmity that is in every natural heart. It is an awful thing, death. People are not meant to die. God never intended that. And when someone dies, it should elicit from you all of the emotions that are appropriate to what death means. Now notice our Lord's own attitude. Verse 33. He was deeply moved in His Spirit and greatly troubled. Now I must tell you, this is not really the force of what the Greek is saying here. You see... The Greek is saying something far more... It's probably a Greek scholar telling me I'm wrong. (laughs) Well, I'm not. Benjamin Warfield has the best essay in the English language on the emotional life of our Lord. It's free online. And he says, Jesus, therefore, when He saw her wailing and the Jews that had come with her wailing was enraged in spirit and troubled himself, and he wept his inwardly restrained fury produced a profound agitation of his whole being, one of the manifestations of which was tears. in other words, Jesus raged, he raged, he was not simply troubled. He saw this whole account not simply as the fact that his friend had died. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. So why is he raged? He's raged because He sees how people are reacting to death. He rages because He sees the lack of faith. He is the resurrection and the life. And people still don't believe He has the power over death at that moment. He rages at what sin has done to people. He rages at how illness affects people and leads to the death of His friend. Everything about death rages in Christ's Spirit. And so deeply moved, yes, but raged in his spirit and greatly troubled, he asks, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The Lord of glory, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, The one who has infinite blessedness in his deity, who cannot know sadness, cannot know grief, cannot know pain, willingly takes to himself a human nature, and a human nature such that he can weep in public. Jesus wept, knowing that Lazarus would be raised shortly thereafter. Now notice the lack of faith in verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is crucial. Is this not the third time now people have said to Jesus or about Jesus, if he had been here, he could have kept him from dying? Where is their faith getting to? Their faith is getting to here. If Jesus was there, He could have healed Lazarus. But that's all their faith is getting to. That's why He's raging. He is the resurrection and the life. And people are only prepared to believe that if He was there, He could have kept Him from dying. They are not saying He could raise Him from the dead. Now Jesus solves the problem because again, raged in his spirit. Verse 38, Then Jesus raged internally, came to the tomb. And there's a stone against it. So he says, Take away the stone. But Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Not three days, not two, where his spirit may be hovering and he comes out a little bit. Whoa, what happened to me? No, he has been dead for four days. He stinks. He really is dead. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? If you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they take away the stone and Jesus lifts up his eyes and he prays. And you know how rare it is for Jesus to pray in a crowd in the New Testament where they hear his voice? Count. It is a handful, not even, of times where Jesus prays. And here he says he is doing it for their benefit because he knows whenever he prays, God hears him. And so when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out! And one theologian aptly said, it's a good thing Jesus said Lazarus, because if He had simply said come out, every dead person in Jerusalem would have come walking out of their graves. And the man who died, interesting, that's how he's referred to, which is why some think that this is Lazarus writing about the whole situation. The man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. You can imagine the shock in Lazarus. Because I don't believe he went to glory after he died. I believe he was sort of unconscious because... Uh, If he'd gone to glory, his soul would have been glorified, he would have been purified in his soul, he would have been in glory. And then imagine saying, well, actually, you've had a good time here for a few days, but we're sending you back down to earth. That's cruel. No one would ever want to come back here, with all due respect, my friends. (laughs) So imagine Lazarus all of a sudden getting up from the slab upon which he'd been laid for four days and he's walking out and there's bandages on him and stuff. He must have thought, whoa, I had a rough night. (laughs) And I don't know how it all happened, but somehow if he didn't know himself, they would have said, actually, Lazarus, you were dead for four days and Christ raised you from the dead. And I'll get to an important point about that later, but let's just see. Oh, good grief. Let me close with one point of application. I had two, but time is gone. Can God heal? Can God heal? Uh, That's a good question, because we could also ask another question, does God always heal? And they're not the same question. So, in 2 Timothy 4, chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 20, Paul writes, Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Paul, who was an apostle, who had raised someone from the dead himself when the young man fell out of the window because he was preaching too long. And he says, I left him ill. Or, says to Timothy, no longer drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Instead of saying, Timothy, if you just believe a little more, everything will go away. You won't have any ailments. I don't know what Trophimus' problem is. He should be healed by now. Or even Epaphroditus was so ill he almost died. Or Paul, who says to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And maybe it was his eyesight or whatever it may have been. Paul had a physical malady that he prayed three times God would remove. And instead of healing him, what did he do? He gave him grace instead. He said, my grace is sufficient. Is it always God's way to heal? You are not God. Your instinct, and this is a good thing by the way, but your instinct is to alleviate suffering when you see it. It is how we are designed, especially mothers with their children. There is a problem. Alleviate, alleviate, alleviate. Cure, remedy. Don't let them suffer. And many... Kind people who are especially sensitive to suffering struggle with this reality. And then you see Jesus coming off a little bit indifferent and waiting and allowing His friend to die. And on three occasions, people saying, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, He wouldn't have died. And as one Scottish preacher said, Eric Alexander, it is because He loved them more than they knew that He left them longer than they wanted. It's because He loved them more than they knew that He left them longer than they wanted. God's delays to His sheep are always delays of love and not of hate. Always. Lazarus is an example. Jesus could have gone. We all know He could have gone and healed him. He could have rushed there. He could have ran there. He could have done everything to get there and said, this will not end in death. Lazarus... Feel better. And guess what? If Jesus had healed Lazarus before he died, we would all be in the same predicament that whatever happens in this life, whatever healing we get, whatever blessing we get, whatever water gets turned into wine, we still have to deal with the fact that we're going to die. But by allowing Lazarus to die, Jesus is saying to you and to me, I have the power over death. And just as when the angel of the Lord said to Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy, and Isaac was removed from that altar, so the angel of the Lord knew he would take Isaac's place. In the same way, when Lazarus came out of that tomb, it meant that Jesus Christ would have to go into that tomb one day and come marching out triumphantly in a way that Lazarus could never conceive of. And this is actually the glory of the Christian faith, my friends, is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have something greater than what Lazarus experienced that day. Because you have been raised with Christ. You are not someone who was merely raised by Christ in order to get another 10 or 20 years on earth as Lazarus did. And I have no doubt that Lazarus was a believer and shares in the reality I'm speaking of now. But all I'm saying is what you have is better than what Lazarus received that day. You have been raised with Christ to such an extent that you are as raised as you will ever be. You don't get to be raised to anywhere higher because you're with Christ. You're seated with Him in the heavenly places. And all that awaits you now is a resurrection body. But the reality and the rights and the privileges are all yours now because you believe in Jesus Christ. You have been raised with Him. And you have something far better than simply being brought out of a tomb. Lazarus, come out hails into significance to your name being said by Jesus Christ come up and be with me let's pray oh lord we thank you for the word of god and for the story of how we so often think you should act a certain way and we by doing that limit you and create idols for ourselves. Help us to trust that Your glory will be revealed, that Your ways are higher than our ways, and that we will one day have that same stunned effect as they did when Lazarus walked out of that tomb, when we see all of Your ways come to perfection and fruition, and the children of God are revealed for all to see. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.